0: We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds.
1: Make yourself a cup of tea. Lift off. We have lift off. Welcome back to 10 Questions. It's great to be podcasting again instead of tweeting about politics. I know nothing I say will make any difference, but the person locked in a sealed dungeon is still going to scream, whatever that means. Today's guest is Charlie Clawson, the actor, writer, and podcaster who, along with Will Anderson, is responsible for the podcasts Tofop and Two Guys, One Cup. And he's also got his own solo podcast, That's Awesome. Charlie's probably best known for playing Zach Maguire on Home and Away, which he's done for the past five years. It was great talking to Charlie at Will's Place in LA. Charlie and I have known each other for quite a few years, but I, I don't feel I really knew him in the sense that I, I didn't know about his childhood, which was which was quite a struggle. So he talks about that today, and he also talks about the passing of his mother, Home and Away, and the fact that if St Kilda don't win a flag in his lifetime he'll see pretty much most of his life as worthless. As usual, I start by asking Charlie when he was most happy.
0: You know what? I've been doing a lot of thinking about that very question about like what is happiness because I think that I find that a very fleeting emotion. I... I uh, have grown up with a lot of upheaval in my life like you know I had a lot of like losses of close family members I lost my father when I was 10 years old and um, you know we lost uh, financially lost all our money when I was about 12 years old and so I have had imprinted on me at a very early age the idea that things go wrong all the time Um, as an adult what I've been trying to come to grips with is the fact that you know that's fine things do go wrong and, and you can deal with it but what it has taken from me is the, from a long time I had a belief that I was never meant to be happy, that, you know, life was just a kind of a, 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 a struggle, you know. I'd sort of moved from one place of sheltering myself to another. But within that, like, I had glimpses of happiness, like, you know, when the Saints uh, got to the grand final in 09 and 10 and, and then broke my heart the following week. Jesus mate. I, I was very happy. Um, wow. But I would say hitting my 30s, that has been a, a very slow incremental increasing in happiness. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously moments as a child, but I can't, ever, I can't recall like, you know, a cliched summer, that you know, uh, a stand-by-me summer or yeah, anything yeah, yeah. like that. Um, I think that I feel very lucky that as I've gr- gotten older... I have become more content and more uh, happy to sit in myself. Um, And I think that's the discovery of just finding out who I am and what my values are. And I always say to people, I think your 20s, you know, you're just so full of kind of vigour and and you want to define yourself. And a lot of the times the way that manifests is you define yourself by what you hate, you know. I love these bands. I hate Mm. these bands. Mm. I love these directors. I hate these directors, you Mm. know. And that's just kind of this briole because you've just got to, you know, find your adult identity. And then I think by the time you get to your 20s, you just start to kind of lose the energy Mm. for hating shit. Yeah. And then you start just focusing on what you like. And it's such a relief to not have to be cool anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, be seen at the right places or be, you know, talking to the right people or whatever. I'm just very content with the life that i have you know i'm happily married i have a dog you know Mm. i live in a beautiful part of australia i get to travel for work um so i'm I'm happy now i'd say i don't know is that is that a disappointing no it's a really good
1: answer so you you were 10 when your
0: dad died how did you how did you deal with that and how did that well it was um he it was a kind of slow process he went in the few days after my birthday, he went into hospital because he was having stomach complaints. He thought maybe he had, like, a stomach ulcer or something like that. And uh, what they found out was his part of his intestine was inflamed, so they were going to remove that and put it in a colostomy bag. It was meant to be a fairly routine procedure. But uh, the initial operation had to be abandoned for some reason. His lung collapsed, I think, in the operation, so they abandoned it. And then in his weakened state, he got pneumonia, and that sort of led to other complications. So over the course of about six months, he sort of declined. You know, he went into intensive care, and then went into a coma, and uh, by just before Christmas, died. How old was he? Um, he would have been he would have been sixty-ish, early sixties, I think. Right. I'm so the yeah. youngest of nine kids, so. Oh wow. So my mother was 42 when she had me. My father would have been 50. So yeah, about yeah. 60.
1: Wow, mate. Yeah, and um, and so it was, and then the lost losing all the money that so with that well, two year period.
0: You're not from Victoria, but do you remember there was a building society called Pyramid? Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Which about is the responsible for yeah. the largest financial collapse. So yeah, um, my dad uh, had left um, quite a bit of money in life insurance. So after he passed away, you know, there was quite a bit of money for Mum to invest, and uh, she put it into Pyramid. And on the advice of a financial advisor, and then um, only about four or five months later, that collapsed.
1: It's the John Cain government, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So
0: I think the I think the compensation was seven cents in the dollar.
1: <laughs> I, I I remember what, reading about that. So when I moved to Victoria, you kind of have a bit of a crash course in <laughs> Victorian history, <laughs> and uh, I remember the pyramid thing having a profound effect on me. I didn't know anyone who'd been hurt by it. Uh, so that's terrible, mate. Um, and so nine kids, so it was a, was
0: yeah, a big Catholic family? a big Catholic family. Um, you know, the where I grew up and the school I went to wasn't unusual. There's a lot of big families like that. Probably four or five kids was a small family yeah. in the community I grew up in. Um, but yeah, it kind of, it, it, it sort of, I think it imprinted on me in, a, in ways that I haven't quite come to terms with until now, uh, which is that, you know, my first kind of step into kind of adolescence, you know, 10 years old, you're moving out of being a kid and you're starting to take your first steps towards, you know, being a grown-up, really. And so I to peek my head out into this world of, you know, independence and that's the first impression I get is that your world's going to get turned upside down. Yeah. Um, and look, we were fine, you know. Things worked out in the end and, and you know, it, didn't, it wasn't like we were destitute or anything like that. We made things work. Mum, you know, had been a housewife for... 30 years just went back to work and you know managed to do? uh she taught worked at a nursing home she, yeah, was, wow. she was an artist so she taught art at a at a nursing yeah. home and um i luckily got a scholarship at my high school so that sort of you know uh, luckily there's only two of us at high school you know after dad died so it wasn't like the you know school fees were, were a huge drain Come on, man. but fun? um but Have those but those things uh, you know they they were hard but it's funny, I actually can't imagine my life any differently, you know. I actually really appreciate the fact that I was raised by just my mum, you know. And uh, uh, I think that that's a lot of who I am today is because of, of that experience. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, and so, being a secular fan... <laughs> Would the uh, second? Biggest, want to talk about real tragedy. Uh, yeah. The biggest grief in your life be Trevor Barker. Was that, <laughs> uh, that- just to know Trevor Barker was the glamour boy and heart and soul of the St Kilda football team in the eighties? He died at the age of thirty six after a long battle with cancer.
0: Like when you think, you know, I was saying earlier, I had this belief that my life was not meant to be happy. Yeah. I mean, look at the team I support. Oh, <laughs> like, the most unsuccessful club in the history of the AFL, like 27 Wooden Spoons or, or something like that. The club for
1: artists, though.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, there's. I. the one thing I cling to is, you know, and I'm good mates with Will Anderson and I've seen yeah. what's happened in the last 12 months with the Bulldogs. I mean, the reason we started our AFL podcast was to... Uh, celebrate the fact that we both barracked for two woefully unsuccessful teams now will is in a different stratosphere i don't even know if we can even communicate i don't know what it's going to be be like yeah but um you know i take a lot of pride in the fact that i have supported that team through thick and thin like god i hope i get some kind of release at some point because like you know if if i go to my grave Having not tasted the ultimate success, then uh, I, I will have wasted a good portion of my life.
1: <laughs> oh mate, <laughs> I,
0: I, I understand. I had success early.
1: I peaked too early. I'm a British yeah guy. right. Um, the second question is, who would you like to apologise to, and why? God, I wish I'd got these questions beforehand. Did I not send them to you? No. Small problem, for the first time in the history of this podcast, I had forgotten to send the interviewee the questions beforehand. So we take a break as Charlie digests the questions and the whole point of this podcast. We return to question two, which is who would you like to apologise to and why?
0: It's funny, uh, Will and I, when we were doing um, Tofop the other week, were talking about teenage romances and I brought up this story about... um, uh, the first girl I ever had a crush on. And um, as a girl that I went to primary school with and then we uh, met up again when we were both about 13 or 14 because we'd catch the same bus. And she was beautiful. I think her name was Georgia. I'm not 100% certain. But I thought she was gorgeous. And we got on so well and, you know, we'd chat at the bus stop and, you know, just really great chemistry. And she um, said she was going to come visit me at my house one day and i was like yeah cool come around in the afternoon after school and when she left all my mates were like oh george is coming around you're gonna feel the boobs you're gonna feel the boobs <laughs> and i had this fucking freak out moment because i was like this like catholic guy and all of a sudden i was confronted with this idea of there is going to be a girl in my house maybe even in my bedroom like what am i going to do i don't think i'm ready for this i don't <laughs> think i'm ready for this so the afternoon that she was meant to come over i camped outside of my house like you know a block from my house waiting for her because i knew the route she was going to take to get there and intercepted her before she got to the house and and said oh you, you can't come to my place uh, Mum's really sick there's actually flu going through the house I'm, I'm i'm really sorry like made up this entire lie about why she couldn't come around like basically sent her packing and then um Every time I saw her from that so I saw her on Monday the next you know the next Monday to go to school she came up to talk to me and I completely blanked her like I decided that I had to cut her out of my life because I was so overwhelmed with shame or embarrassment or some and kind pressure of pressure from the other guys pressure from the guys or whatever and so I remember it, it was because we'd gone to primary school together one of the things we'd been chatting about when we'd catch the bus is she had like an old school record and she was going to bring in this school record to show me a photo of us when we were in like grade three or something like that and uh so the day I was ignoring her she came up to talk to me and I and she was brave because I was with all my mates all boys school so we're all just chatting and she did that thing where she broke from her friends and came into the boys group to talk to me and I completely froze her out blanked her like barely acknowledged her and I just remember when we got on the bus, she got off at her stop and it was a very cool move. She literally just took the record out and just threw it at me and then stepped off the bus. So Georgia, Georgina, well, I can't remember what your name is, I would like to apologise to you because she would have had no idea what happened. Like no. we had been really good buddies up until that point and maybe she wanted to kiss me, maybe she didn't. Like I assumed she wanted to, I wanted to kiss her. But... Something happens, some kind of you know.
1: Made it. Those things happen in the early days like, of uh, <laughs> of romance. You, I mean, it's like romance is
0: very generous.
1: Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. But you've got to get used to it. <laughs> um, what well, you did say? How old you were? How old were
0: you then? I think I was about. It would have been about like eleven or twelve. I, oh made Yeah. yeah right.
1: Well, and you know, I like the move of the uh, the throwing the, the record <laughs> um, at, she, at you or the window? At me. Yeah, right. No, to make a point. Yeah, yeah, good. That's, best, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, well, she, you know, she kind of got some dignity back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Question three, what is your greatest regret? Uh, I think my greatest regret is going to the uh, 2010 replay. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, no, if you're going to lose a grand final, you don't want to lose it to Collingwood. Yeah, right. Like... Yeah. I mean, we should have won the first grand final. you like, should have won against Geelong. You're right. You know what? That's the grand final. We should, that's the one yeah. that, that was stolen from us. We would have stolen 2010. Yeah. Um, but it was such that the first grand final was such an amazing feeling. Like, Lenny Hayes and Brendan Goddard playing out of their skins. Mm. Like, Lenny Hayes just playing probably one of the greatest grand finals of all time. Like, yeah. in terms of a Norm Smith performance. But it was funny because I had begged and scraped to get my ticket. Like, you know, all my famous friends, please, please, like, get me a ticket to this game. And finally, I think it was Charlie Pickering gave me his ticket. (laughs) And uh, I was sitting amongst all the Collingwood cheer squad. Oh, really? Yeah, or just above them. Like, I was just just behind them. And with six minutes to go, Brendan Goddard took that screamer in the goal square to put us up. And I thought there was only a couple minutes to go. And these dudes had been giving me shit all day. And so when goddard took that grab i was just like fuck you fuck you and my mates tugging on my jumper saying six minutes to go six minutes to go and i was like oh shit so sitting down and then watching that clock tick out it just it's the worst feeling like a, a draw i mean thank god they're done with it have you seen they made that documentary about the final draw no which is uh, yeah last year on, on channel seven they made a fantastic you know uh, one hour documentary about really? that game i was
1: I was away all last year I would love to have seen that yeah
0: it's amazing but i should have known like that that we would spent all our tickets like i think the 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 herculean effort yeah to come back into that game meant that yeah. we had nothing left the next week and i like i think there was a nagging doubt all week because i had to i was living in sydney i had to go back to sydney and then i had to get another ticket to come back down and I had a nagging doubt that we were done. Yeah. I had a nagging doubt that it wasn't going to happen. And despite my better judgment, I went again and within – well, after that smother. The Heath smother. Yeah.
1: So, um, and you blame yourself for, for giving <laughs> the finger to the Collingwood Oh, you think it was my fault. God then the – Yeah, right. Because <laughs> yeah. well, this is how we, we – we, there, we, yeah, we
0: there, there was a bit of hubris uh, <laughs> behind it, certainly. Question four, mate,
1: what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life?
0: I think I think keep challenging myself. Um, I think by nature I'm a conservative individual, not mm. in my political beliefs necessarily, but mm. just in my life choices. I like comfort. I fear change. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. a bit of a homebody. Yep. Um, but I seem to... Luckily, I, some other part of me consistently shakes up my comfort zone and, and compels me to do things that scare me. And, I mean, hence, um, you
1: being here, we're in LA right now. Yeah,
0: yeah, hence being in LA. Like, uh, you know, we're just sort of talking off air about, you know, the insanity of kind of giving up security in a career yeah. back home to chase something where there's no guarantees. But there is something, you know, tremendously thrilling about that. My mother uh, passed away a year ago. And, uh, talking to her about it, she said something to me that actually meant quite a lot, you know, um, she was sort of saying she, she died on her own terms. She, she had cancer and decided to quit the chemo and, and then, um, died at home surrounded by her kids. Like if you're going to, if you're going to go, that's the, that's the way to go. Yeah. And, uh, when I was talking to her, I did a couple of podcasts with her. We, we talked about, you know, what was happening and, and, you know, her attitude towards death and stuff. And. She was saying that the only things you leave behind are your rela- your relationships and what you create. And they're the things that you should invest in. And it really meant a lot to me because it's like, yeah, well, my, I make my career out of creating things. And if I stay in that comfort zone, then I'm not creating anything new. I need to actually challenge myself. So yeah. although I had this temptation uh, to, to not do anything to just stay safe and pull the doona up you know i think to live a satisfactory life i, I need to keep putting new challenges in front of myself just keep you know jumping in the deep end and mm. seeing if i can seeing if i can swim you know there's uh, like I, I write all the time man. before i got into acting i was i was a writer that's what i studied at university and um you know that's really what i think my my natural inclination is if i had a natural talent it's probably writing but i've never um, apart from some short films and some online stuff, like I've never really had anything made from my writing, you know. And so, at the moment, you know, Gemma and I have this feature film that we've had some development funding for. That you know, that's what we're working on. Gemma is the film director
1: Gemma Lee Charlie's wife and sometime collaborator.
0: I want to. I want to be a. I want to be an author. You know. Yeah, I want to. Yeah. I want to create more of my own work. Yeah. I think I've been focusing on acting for for quite a while, but. And I do love acting, but ultimately you are the bottom rung creatively. Yeah. You know, you are sort of saying other people's lines, wearing what someone else tells you to wear, and saying things in a way that someone else tells you how to say it. Um, You know, I produced for quite a while. Um, Gemma and I had a production company, and I loved that. You know, I actually realised after being an actor for seven or eight years and then getting into producing, it's like, oh, shit, I think – I'd forgotten how much I enjoy the actual crafting and delivering of work. You know, Starting something from scratch and then seeing it through to the end. Before working on
1: Home and Away, Charlie and Gemma had a production company called Blackberry Films. With Gemma directing and Charlie producing, they made commercials, short films and web content as well as music videos for Guy Sebastian and Casey Chambers and Rhys Marston and Paul Dempsey. We now move on to question five. Which is, who is the
0: person who most influenced you and how? Uh, I would say that my adult life would be my wife, Gemma. Um, Gemma's a remarkable individual. You know, she was born on an island off the coast of Scotland. Uh, uh, She came out here as a 19-year-old. You know, she had studied fine art um, at Edinburgh College. Got to Australia, didn't really know anyone
1: um, Why did she come to Australia?
0: She met a bunch of comedians oh, at yeah, Edinburgh yeah. Comedy Festival. Gotcha. So Will and Adam Hills and um, Tripod and yeah, all right. those guys, and um, and so she, they encouraged her to move to Australia. She had she had a bit of a, a wanderlust anyway, right? But right. Um, I think maybe Australia, Australia was probably. It was a destination, but it was probably you know five or six down on on the list of places she wanted to go first. I think she oh, went like via New York and
1: yeah, yeah, okay, uh,
0: Mexico and stuff. Um, but when she got here, you know, she trained herself up from scratch to be a graphic designer. With you know, she didn't go to school or anything like that. She just taught herself Photoshop. She started a printing agency, and then by the time I met her, she was like you know a, a very well paid graphic designer, and then. You know, after doing that for six or seven years, she's like, I think I'd like to get into fashion. She'd never worked in fashion before. She just dummied up a fashion portfolio and applied for some jobs and then started working in fashion, doing like T-shirt prints and stuff. And then after two years of that, she's like, I think I'd like to get into film. And so she applied to the VCA, having never made a short film. Um, You know, she just went out on the weekend with me and we shot an experimental kind of Mm -hmm. film. And... Um, She didn't get in on the first acceptance, but uh, she got in the waiting list. And so then when she did get the call-up, she had that classic thing of, I'm not meant to be here, therefore I need to work twice as hard as everyone else to prove. And so she ended up, you know, doing a master's in directing at the VCA. And the thing about Jem that I've learned and why she's been such a huge influence is that she just does not put a limit on what she can achieve. She... She, I am a kind of what's the point kind of guy. She's more of a why not kind of yeah. girl, and you know she really coaxed me when she met me. I was an out of work actor, and she asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, well, I really think you know I want to write. You know, I think I, that's what I studied at uni. I think I, I've got talent for it, and she's gone. Well, just say you're a writer. You know, you are a writer. Just do it. And I didn't know what that meant. And she said, well, just email a bunch of editors and just, you know, start saying you want to review films or something. So that's what I did. I just, hmm. you know, wrote a bunch of dummy reviews and then emailed a bunch of magazines and started getting, you know, hired to write film reviews and stuff. And really? That's awesome. Yeah. And, and she's sort of done that with me sort of every very patiently every step of the way because I think I have maybe more neurosis than her or whatever. But she, you know, hears my neurosis and then she has just given me, you know, not like a... A tough love kind of thing but she just gives me a very pragmatic approach to well this is how this is how you get past that and look I'd like to think that now we've been together 13 years it's very much a kind of um a, a symbiotic relationship I, I like to think that I support her as much as she supports me but you don't mate. You, you're, you're... <laughs> coattails all the way <laughs> yeah no I just I feel very it's funny I used to you know I'd see you know, like uh, I'd see Shaun of the Dead and I'd be like, God, sh- you know, Simon Pegg was so lucky he found Edgar Wright, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Someone <laughs> who just has like, can visually, you know, take his ideas and, and create this thing. And then I just happened to be married to my Edgar Wright because, yeah. you know, Gemma is an amazing um, director and, and, you know, her, she's very visual, you know, her father's a photographer, yeah, she's yeah. just sort of got a great eye and I feel like together, you know... I'm the words and she's the pictures. Great. And it hasn't impacted, I mean, you know what it's like being married to a creative, like, Mm. you know, sometimes you worry that shit, is it just going to become about the work? You know, we're going to lose ourselves in that. But we've managed to have a good bit of separation from that. There are times, you know, when we had the production company where we'd be sitting (laughs) opposite each other at the same table, not talking but emailing each other like back and forth. Right.
1: Wow. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I mean, we've, occasionally had to impose limitations on <laughs> on when we talk about work. But, yeah. Uh, cause I'll, I'll happily talk about it all the time, but uh, you know, yeah, right. that's apparently not, not a good thing. Yeah. But it, it's ebbs and flows, you know, you, you're working together for a little while and then you have a relationship together. And, yeah. yeah. But
0: I think it like, you, see, you know, there's Deborah Snyder and Zack Snyder, like you see it, Jonathan Nolan and, and his yeah. wife. You see a lot of people do it, um, Peter Jackson and his wife, and I can understand it. Like, I think that, a lot of people always question, oh, isn't it hard working with someone? I'm like, no, no, like shorthand's gone. There's no, you know, you instinctively know where she's going to go on a decision and, and vice versa. And as a producer, I found it, you know, it, it was a perfect relationship. Yeah. You know, I backed her 100%, but I could practically. Uh, make happen what she needed to, yeah. to realise realize her vision. There was That's no great. discussion needed, you know. I could speak on her behalf because I knew exactly what she wanted. That's brilliant, yeah.
1: Mm. When I was a journalist, I interviewed Dave Graney and Claire Moore. And Claire Moore's his wife, mm. who, who percussion on all of his albums. And I said, oh, you know, it must have been 22 or something. And I said, is it difficult, like, living together and working together? And Dave just looked at me and he said, it's not like it's mining coal. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Um,
0: so question six is when was the last time you cried and why? I mean, like proper cry or like, you know, I was watching Marley and Me and, you know. Either,
1: um, either. But um, I mean, you know, what probably, what, what was the last
0: cry that meant something to you maybe? Um, well, you know, the last year, obviously, with mum having passed away, I'd say there's been a few moments mm. um, we just had to pack up her apartment this Christmas. So, you know, she had this beautiful apartment in Melbourne and because she was an artist, you know, this place was filled with all her artwork. And it was one of those homes where when you go in, you got an immediate sense of who this person was, you know. You, it, it was like – it felt like her space, you know. Oh, dear. Um, that, that would have been hard. Yeah. So, you know, a big family. So we just – amongst us kids, we had an agreement that we'll just leave the place as is for a year. Um, allow everyone to go down and spend some time in the house and just kind of, you know, get some closure. And then, um, you know, just before Christmas, we we packed the place up and, and, and uh, you know, just got everything out of there. So I, I felt over the, the year, I, I had done a few trips on my own and, and, you know, I'd spent some time in Melbourne and just really come to terms with it. And I actually felt okay. Like, you know, I was okay to let go and... Um, the great thing about mum is that, you know, she didn't... She was not a sentimental person necessarily. You know, she didn't want a monument built in her honour. She didn't want us to be, like, mourning her forever or black armbands or anything like that. You know, she wanted us to move on with our lives. She You know, she wanted she wanted us just to kind of... Um, to know that we were happy and, and living happy lives was all she wanted. Yeah. And um, so it, it wasn't as hard to pack that stuff up but i think we we had sort of gotten most of the stuff out of the house and um you know we'd all selected we we'd we'd gone around as a group and literally gone through every drawer and every nook and cranny and if does anyone want this yes or no if you didn't want it it was going to charity or, or or an auction house or whatever um And so, you know, we'd all, I had my box of, you know, keepsakes and some artwork and, you know, some notes and things she'd written. Um, So I felt like, you know, I I wasn't going to have any regrets in that sense. But then it was very odd. I was driving a van because I'd hired a van to move some furniture and take to charity shops and stuff. And I was driving a, a van filled with, because she was a painter, um, tins of methylated spirits and paint, like toxic chemicals yeah. essentially, out to a, a, a dump in Mount Waverley because <laughs> um, it's the only place in Melbourne that, where you can dump, yeah. dump toxic chemicals. And uh, it had been an okay few days. Like, you know, um, there hadn't been any tears or anything, but just a lot of hard work and, you know, a bit of, just some tensions and stuff as you'd expect, you know, in, with, in, the kids. with the kids. Nothing drastic, just, you know people on edge, and um, maybe it had just been the physical exertion of of moving furniture for four days or something, but I'd been driving through traffic for 45 minutes, and when I got to the dump, um, the gate was closed. I'd missed it by, like, 15 minutes. And I sort of stopped the truck, the van, and just burst into tears and had, like, a really good, cathartic sob. You know, it's been really the process of losing you know having lost both parents now and uh you know having had two completely different experiences like my father's was obviously I was a child and it was quite unexpected and you know scary and mum's was the opposite it was quite profound and beautiful and um I feel quite privileged to have been there for that and to have witnessed someone die with such dignity and and grace and um i mean she was ready like it's it's you were with her when she died uh no i wasn't with her well i would i she died on a thursday i was down on a sunday and um i'd made the decision that i wasn't going to go back down um i'd been i'd i'd been there when my father had died and it had scarred me i think um and I'd because I'd gone down to Melbourne for a weekend. My, Gemma and I had gone down, and we'd spent this amazing weekend with her, where we'd watched movies and we'd laughed and we'd cooked for her, and it was just this great, you know, um, great couple of days. And then Gemma was staying in Melbourne for a few more days, but I was going back to Sydney. So Jem was saying goodbye to her, and I remember just standing in the doorway watching. Gemma say goodbye and mum was all, you know, she was bald by that stage and she was all rugged up. She looked like the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And you know, Gemma was kneeling next to her bed and saying goodbye. And, you know, Mum, because we'd just gotten married uh, only a few months earlier, and Mum had been saying to Gemma, like she was so happy that she had another daughter and all this kind of stuff. And I just got all choked up. And when Gemma came out to the hallway, I said to her, I think Mum's saying goodbye to you. And she was like, No, I don't think so. I'm like, no, I've got the sense that she's saying goodbye. And so I saw Gem off, and then I went back into Mum's bedroom and I sat with her. And I said, um, you know, she was just saying lovely things, you know, just you know how proud she was of me and, you know, it had been a great weekend. And, and I said to her, are you saying goodbye? And she said, yeah. And I just started bawling. And she said to me, I'm sorry, I, I can't take your grief away from you. I wish I could, but, you know, this is something that you need to go through and just know that I love you. And so when I got back to Sydney, I just thought about it and I was like, that's possibly the most beautiful moment of my life. Um, you know, incredibly sad and heart-wrenching, but so profound. I just didn't want my last impression of her to be any different. You know, when I think about her, the last time I saw her, it, it is beautiful, you know? It, she was transcendent, she was ready to go. She had a glow about it. There was just something about her. Um, and it wasn't an issue, by the way, like, you know, um, everyone understood, like, uh, you know, one of my other sisters chose not to go down as well and um, from the kids who were there when she passed, that also sounds like an incredible moment, you know, they literally cheered her on, you know, they told her to let go and cheered her on into, into wherever, whatever happens next. Um, what an amazing family you've got, now. Yeah, uh, it, it's been... A, it's been it's been remarkable in a lot of ways, you know, that's why yeah. I, I'm saying like, um, you know, I, I, you let go a lot of this anger and, and resentment and when you get to your thirties, because you don't have time for that. You know, there's things you can focus on. You can focus on the, 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 the good things or the beautiful things in these moments. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: No, that's, that's, yeah, very profound. Um, uh, question seven is: What is your current
0: state of mind? Um, I think I'm in a real introspective, as you can probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm doing a lot of uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, soul searching at the moment. I'd say probably actually for the last for the last almost year or so, I decided to do a bit of work on myself. Oh. And um, you know, in the wake of Mum's passing. Uh, I was like okay I just want to take some take stock of who I am and and you know what my values are and what I stand for um and so I just started doing you know I started doing therapy and I started doing meditating every day and um, doing a lot of reading um and I sort of feel like I feel like I'm in this transition point I I, I sort of feel I turned 40 this year I don't know if you know age means anything but for me, I feel like it's a, I'm sort of passing into a milestone moment, you know, where uh, I know who I was, and that served me to a certain point, and now I'm ready to move into whatever that next... I don't want to say evolve, it sounds a bit wanky, but I feel like there's some baggage I've been carrying with me that I don't need to carry anymore. You know, I was someone who suffered from a lot of anxiety and neurosis for reasons we've already discussed, and... Um, Everyone has baggage, but I don't want it anymore. Mm. You know, I've made a I've made an active choice that I'm going to work on it. You know, I mm. think that um, I think it's easy to deny and ignore that stuff, mm. um, but it, it doesn't go away. And and uh, you know, and I'm, I'm I'm someone my mind can be my worst enemy at times. You know, like oh. it can talk me into some horrible paranoid thoughts or. <laughs> yeah negative negative commentary you know sometimes i i don't know i don't know who this person is who's you know he seems to hate me oh your mind is your worst enemy i can not your mind but one's (laughs) mind yeah yeah so i think that's that's the state of mind i'm in where i'm i'm letting go i'm letting go of some stuff and i'm and i'm i'm acknowledging that i have problems and that i have you know things that i need to work on and um I mean it's funny, like if twenty-three year old me met me now, he'd be like, What a wanker. <laughs> like Gemma and I will get up first thing in the morning and, and we'll put our on our matching puffer vest and we'll take the dog for a walk <laughs> down the cliffs. And you know, I imagine that like twenty-three-year-old me would just be getting home from some night out and he'd be looking at me and he'd be like, You wanker. But twenty-three-year-old me would also need to borrow some money and need a place to stay. So you know, it's a next film. <laughs>
1: Charlie one, running in the Charlie two. Looper. Um, question eight is what is your greatest
0: achievement? I would what, like to sorry, think... What do you consider your greatest achievement? Oh, God. I mean, this is a cop out, but I, I don't know if I've... I don't know that I've... I don't think... I think I have lots of little achievements. Does that count? Yeah. Well, you know what? Anything that I do that has been off the sweat of my own brow, mm. I consider it an achievement. Like, um, I'm really proud of the podcast that yeah. Will and I do. You know... How did um, that start? How did you... Oh, you met through Gemma. Uh, yeah, how did I meet Will? Yeah, how yeah. did you meet uh, uh, Will, no, and no, how did you no, guys? No, no, I met Gemma through Will.
1: Right, and how did you? Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: I met Will through Charlie Pickering, and I shared a house together in Sydney, and he started on Triple J. Okay, and then when did you go When did you think?
1: Let's do. There's this thing called
0: podcasting. <laughs> well, we were both huge fans of um, Smodcast, Kevin Smith's yeah. podcast, and um, we were driving. I was, uh, I was making little. web doco series um for will he was doing a a tour of australia so we were doing this road trip and i was filming it and oh yeah and uh in between filming and stuff um we would have a lot of time just to fucking you know drive and 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 talk and so we'd listen to a lot of smodcast and we were like it's just two mates talking like we fucking do this all the time in fact you know, Will and I often would go to parties, our friends' parties, and we'd just end up in the corner, like talking to each other about fucking nonsense. You know, yeah. we just had a kind of um, a, 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 a simpatico, I guess, yeah. where, you know, we have the same interest and we can jump around on topics and keep up with each other. So, you know, we sort of started it with no real ambitions. We, you know, put no. I mean, look, you know, Will's one of the most successful comedians in Australia, so it's always going to garner some attention. But, you know, we just sort of put it out there without any kind of, you know, promotion or anything like that. We just wanted to see if we had something. You know, we were quite willing to abandon it after 15 episodes if it didn't work. And some people say we should have. <laughs> but I've not met them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it just... I mean, I'd, I'd say it in a lot of ways it became an excuse for Will and I to catch up because, you know, we're both pretty busy and we lead very different lives. But this was a reason for us to get together once a week and just talk shit, you know, talk AFL or, you know, movies or or whatever.
1: It's great. It's a great thing. So so the podcast is one of the little achievements. What else? Um,
0: Fuck, I don't
1: know. (laughs) Let me think. Surviving Home and Away? Uh,
0: Surviving Home and Away, yeah. Um, Well, you know what? The fact that I've had a... I often... I often it took me about seven or eight years to even admit I was an actor, like if people asked me what I did, I'd be embarrassed to say, especially in Australia, like it you know you might as well say you're an astronaut for Are you' the,
1: embarrassed now no and, and but what would you say writer or an actor
0: uh, I'd say I'm an actor, yeah, now, but is that where you earn most of your money or is it well, that's how most people you? would know yeah. me yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. um but I would you know. Uh, my my bio on Twitter says uh, actor writer podcaster so that 's probably a, an equivalent hyphen isn 't yeah <laughs> slashy yeah uh, but yeah I would say that um you know looking back on my career i 've i 've pro- probably worked you know most of my adult life as an actor and i 've never really given myself credit for that because you know what it 's like well you you're, you create your own work but you know, when you're... Had to, mate. No one would no one know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This show's missing. It's missing Adam's wah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the wah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just... I guess it, I, I always expected that... Well, you know what? Before Home and Away came along, I, I did think I was done. I actually thought I'd had a pretty good run, you know? I'd done quite a few shows and I'd worked pretty consistently through my 20s. But then I got to 33-ish and uh, 33, 34... Oh, no, probably a bit younger, probably probably about 30. And the role's just dried up, as happens to every actor in their lifetime. You just yeah. go through a dry pe- period. And I think, for me, I was at a point where I was too old to be the young guy and I wasn't quite old enough to be yeah. the dad or the lawyer or the cop or whatever. Um, and so I threw myself into producing and writing and, and you know, and that's how I was making my income. Um, and then Home and Away came along and I was like, sure, you know, I'll give it a shot and see if I've still got... The appetite for it, and and I did, and it's been great. Like it's 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 a great show, and it really is a place where you can get out of it as much as you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's fully set up to support people with not just acting ambitions, but if you want to write, you can go into the writing department. You mm. can submit a script if you want to learn how to produce. They'll probably won't like you hanging around too much, but they'll allow it, and you can sit in on the edits. You can you know there's there's they allow free movement between departments people start off in crew end up in the script department people start off in the office end up on the floor like it's did you direct? no
1: you just you, like... I was just a pure
0: actor because yeah. Yeah, the thing so is when, when when I got the well when I got the job I was like I never studied acting I you know yeah. pretty much self-taught and I knew that they had full-time drama coaches on that show so my attitude was well I've signed a three-year contract initially so I'm going to treat it like university. I'm going to go to get as much coaching as I can, going to work my ass off, you know. I think as a younger actor, when it had come a bit easier, I was a bit cocky. And yeah. I just assumed this gravy train was going to last forever and that, you know, I didn't really need to put any work in because people kept hiring me regardless. Mm. And then you eat a bit of humble pie. And so when this opportunity came around, I was like, no, nah, fuck it. Like I actually, I'm gonna, I'm going to work really hard and I'm – and I'm glad it's, it's, it's just the sheer contact hours you do on that show. It's like boot camp, you yeah. know? I mean, the muscle memory I have for learning lines now is insane. Like, I surprise myself. Like, I can yeah, be well. given, like, a five-page script and I can learn it within, like, 20 minutes just because... Perfect for here. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And that's what they, they say. Like, a, a lot of people ask me why I think Australian actors do so well ...in LA and I think it's one of two things. You know, to make it over here... ...you either have to be exceptionally talented... ...or exceptionally hardworking... Mm. ...and either of those two things serve you really well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not to denigrate American actors... ...but in my experience I do feel like... ...there is a separation in American attitudes... ...between celebrity and acting. They don't see a difference. You know, someone who was, you know... ...the homecoming queen or the most popular kid... ...in their high school in the Midwest... ...they come to Hollywood... Mm. But they don't understand that it's a craft. You know, you've got yeah. to actually put work into it.
1: We have a quick break as Charlie's doorbell has just rung. at some of his home and away mates wanting to borrow a camera for an audition. Question nine, mate. Oh, we had a little break there. So, question nine Who would you want on your side in a battle and why?
0: John O'Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know like, No, not at all. No. But Will and I, uh, we talked once about, you know, like an apocalyptic scenario. And we, like, which one of our friends would become the leader of the group? Like, who's the most alpha? And, uh, you know, maybe apart from Brett Tucker, uh, we don't have that many alpha dudes in our group. And then the person we settled upon as being, like, the guy that could, you know, fucking lead the group is John O'Brown Yeah. Like, that guy just, have, you've probably met him, right? You've...
1: I've never met him, but for, for me, he is the most alpha male yes. in the world. I can't imagine a scenario where he would be low status.
0: Yeah, ever. Like he's like he's like a silverback. He just is yeah. he just dominates. I mean God, this has been a very AFL centric has this been the most <laughs> AFL <is> centric <laughs> one you've done?
1: Um I, I interviewed Jared Whateley. Oh, okay. oh <laughs> my god, What was that like Oh it was great, yeah. I
0: got I, a photo with Jared Waitley and Robbo at the Logies this year. It was I like, saw that photo. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I love those that, that I mean yeah,
0: Fangirling yeah. very hard.
1: I worked <laughs> I worked with Jared back in the nineties, uh, at the Herald Sun. Oh right. Um so yeah, no, I've been a bit of massive fan since he's, he's um, made the jump. But yeah, so John O'Brown, oh, couldn't go wrong there, mate. Um, and what about in the showbiz battle? Showbiz
0: Who battle. Who would you want on
1: your side in, from showbiz? I guess you've got Will. <laughs> Come on,
0: no, but Will's got bad hips. He'd be fucking useless. <laughs> In a showbiz battle. I know. Is it like? Are we talking like a physical battle, or no, is it no, more of you a? Like to,
1: you know, in your when co- it comes in an art, in a creative sense, you yeah. know, like you know, it could be. Yeah, right. Comedy, or it could be
0: acting, or you know, um, maybe acting. Uh, maybe acting. Uh, you know what? Let's go with Brett Tucker. Like that dude. He has the. He's physically imposing. And he's also... Like, as long as I've known Brett, he's never been out of work. Like, he he knows the secret. Oh, yeah. Like... Yeah. And the funny thing is, he's not a household name, really. No. Like, but he never stops working the whole time. I've known him for almost 20 years now, and the dude has always been at work. Yeah. So, if it was a showbiz battle... I think he obviously has got a good strategy. Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: Uh, we interviewed Brett two podcasts ago, so check that out. Um, and the final question <laughs> to Charlie is, what would you like your last words to be? Can I go now? <laughs> and you can, mate.
0: We have mission sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names.
1: Great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea.
0: Lift off. We have lift off.